Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. everybody i'm nico and you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and i'm tk you can find me on twitter and instagram at xnatexgrayx and i need to be honest while i know that we have not been exactly the closest to the mc to itself in like geez i don't know four episodes or so we've had a lot of spider girl we're sort of back to that weird we need to investigate every aspect of the mc2 universe and how it reflects into the marvel universe and man, we we read some stuff for this one, dude. When we started to get to this idea that these characters outgrew the actual MC2 timeline and imprint and there could be some interesting stories for them other places, that was, to me, really cool because it speaks to how characters can grow and change over time. But we kind of, for today, have to admit that a big part of this is just because we're horny for Black Tarantula. Yeah, and we don't even get to really be horny for the Black Tarantula tarantula here exactly so i mean i definitely have a thing for carlos but it's not the same thing as our precious fabian it's just not and to just mention briefly what we're talking about today we're going to be looking at a selection of black tarantula and we're going to kick things off with a look at amazing spider-man 436 through 439 now these mark a number of tom defalco's final issues on the title from there we're going to take a look at the ed brubaker daredevil tie-ins the daredevil annual from his run as well as Daredevil Blood of the Tarantula. These are both very Carlos-heavy stories, and they kind of give us a sense of what MC2 was also kind of vibing on, the potential of this character. From there, we're going to take a look at as much of Cullen Bunn's as Guardians of the Galaxy as makes sense in this episode, always understanding that sometimes the story kind of pushes us a little bit further. You know, TK, when we started this whole thing, I never would have seen myself reading the tail end of Tom DeFalco's run on Amazing Spider-Man. I just could not have foreseen that. You know, even late on when we decided that we would explore characters like Thunderstrike and Spider-Girl outside of specifically MC2 titles, I definitely would not have thought it either. But a very interesting thing happens here. We're we're obviously going to talk about Black Tarantula and that's the whole idea. But I found one of my real anchors in reading all this was looking at something that we have discussed a lot during Spider-Girl from a slightly different angle. We have talked a lot about how Spider-Girl as a character might have flourished a little bit more and might have seen some interesting development had somebody besides Tom DeFalco and somebody besides Ron Friends gotten the chance to work with the character, to give her new looks, to give a different voice to her. And something that I did not expect, but I found myself saying about, especially these issues of Amazing Spider-Man, I forgot how many things 
things I really love about Tom DeFalco's writing when I'm not reading him write Spider-Girl. <laughs> like, it's it's refreshing to have that break as well. And when you're not reading him write 200 issues in a row where there's no way to take a break, you know, this was like dialing into like a different bit. And yeah, there's a sense of ease because it's not in that big, you know, chunk of material that we can't quite escape. And there's a real sense in reading this. This is coming out around the same time that Spider-Girl is starting and his voice just feels fresher on this than it does in Spider-Girl and I think part of that is just the fact that at this point it's been so drilled into my head the Spider-Girl voice of Tom DeFalco that it's kind of starting to sound like nonsense but it does just feel like there is a flow for this book that is entirely different even though interestingly enough it's a lot of the same characters and a lot of the same situations but the flow is just different and you see ways in which Tom DeFalco approaches things differently and it refreshing is the best word I can use because uh, we just got a little bit repetitive and stale doing Spider-Girl over and over and over again and so even to see him shift to a young Peter Parker in 616 you do just get a different sense of how he writes it's so shocking to me that these issues are only months into the planning of Spider-Girl. Spider-Girl had started earlier in 98 in the pages of the What If and then continued on in its own narrative. But this is like right around the time he's starting Spider-Girl. That's crazy to me. It is. It feels so funny to think about him trying to write a 15-year-old girl versus trying to write a 25-year-old man, both of whom are ostensibly living in parallel versions of the same time period and who are going to have, for reader's sake, a similar vernacular, similar cultural references. And yet so many of them, I feel like he pulls off in Spider-Man and it's the same dated references. Like it's the same time period. So the references are all going to be similar, but where he pulls them off in Spider-Man, they I just, for some reason, they really do sound like old man doesn't get teen humor when it comes to Spider-Girl. And it's just crazy to me because it, this is the same time for him as a writer and this is the same age approximately for these characters it shouldn't be this vast gulf that I found myself seeing it as and to dial a little bit into what we're talking about when we take a look at Amazing Spider-Man we're going to be looking at 436 to 439 the final four issues Tom DeFalco did on the main Amazing title there was also still the eponymous Spider-Man title running at this point I believe Sensational also might have been running around now and so it wasn't like this was the only spider book in town it is of note that it was still the best-selling Spider-Book in these periods. Amazing Spider-Man number 436 came out in July of 1998, written by Tom DeFalco, with pencils by Joe Bennett, inks by Bud LaRosa, colors by Bob Sharon, and letters by Richard Starkings, Comic Craft by Kiff Skoll. Amazing Spider-Man 437 released the next month, also by Tom DeFalco and Bud LaRosa and Bob Sharon on inks and colors, respectively. Sees Raphael Kenyanin come in for pencils and Liz Agrafodius from Comic Craft on Letters. The final two issues of Amazing Spider-Man we're going to be taking a look at, 438 and 439, were both released in September of 1998 and both feature Tom DeFalco on writing and Bob Sharon on colors. However, they have otherwise totally different creative teams. The penciler on 438 is Scott Collins with inks from Gary Marshall.
Martin with letters from Comic Crafts. Siobhan Hanna, 439, sees Raphael Kananen come back alongside Bud Rosa with Liz Agrafotis on letters one more time. Now, these issues, I don't have all of the sales figures for them, but these were some healthy numbers. I can see why they thought that Spider-Girl was going to be such a big hit early on. The initial sales of this Amazing Spider-Man time period, we're seeing 66,000 on 436 and only dropping as low as 63,480 on 439. Good lord. Yeah, those are huge. That's the best Spider-Girl the series ever did. And just to think about that it's happening in at this time period, 98, not like a shining beacon of comic sales, and also that it's 400 plus issues into the series and people are not sick of it. It really makes a powerful statement about sort of the relevance of legacy titles at one point in canon. You can see why they were, you know, eager to keep characters like Spider-Man at these high numbers because at this point, high numbers didn't seem to be hurting anything. Yeah, I often wonder about the psychology of when it really started because I, I feel like there was a time where it really was, well, if it's been going 400 issues, it's got to be good. Like, of course, I'm going to pick it up. And everybody came into comics having to just accept that there was going to be legwork to do to catch up. Sometimes you would actually do that work and go find back issues. And sometimes, like, especially if you were a little kid, you would just start when you started and figure it out as you went along. But it's really fascinating that within about 10 years of this time period, these legacy numbers are going to seem almost taboo. And there's this expectation that well, if, if you want me, a new reader, to get into it, you better start with number one. And I've said it a lot on the show lately, and that's something that I've very much been aware of. If a number one sells better than a number six, and a number 350 as a legacy renumbering sells better than a number six, then it sort of sounds to me like it would be deeply irresponsible to sell an issue in a form that is less money-making. It actually kind of rings to me like that would be a fool's errand in some ways. Yeah, and there's a lot we can talk about in terms of how the storytelling operates, what creators have to work with. It is a big and ongoing discussion, but looking at this particular book in this particular time period, I, I don't think this indicates to us in any way that we should go back to, you know, getting books into the hundreds, but it does indicate that, you know, psychology among comics buyers has shifted over time. And regardless of how we feel about that from a creative standpoint, it's something that you can't look at this and then look at where we were in 2008 or 2018 and not say, like, the the company changed with the market. And that, again, if we're talking about a fiduciary responsibility to keep these creators paid, to keep them eating, then yeah, I do understand the dynamic shift. It once again sort of highlights our point that Spider-Girl just wrong fucking time, girl. And yet something we've said over and over again, there was some calculus by which though the numbers were not fantastic, they were good enough to keep going. And even if the books themselves didn't always have the greatest direct impact at the time, it's sort of hard not to think that perhaps in some ways, Tom DeFalco's continued use of the Black Tarantula is sort of how he found himself in the pages of Daredevil. Daredevil by Ed Brubaker followed on the heels of Brian Michael Bendis's major run. Brian Bendis, who in many ways is responsible for the death of (laughs) Spider-Girl. So, you know... 
fun. Over in the pages of Daredevil, we have the Daredevil Annual from December 2007, written by Ande Parks and Ed Brubaker, pencils by Leandro Fernandez, inks by Scott Koblish, colors by June Chung, and letters by Chris Eliopoulos. This book sold about 40,000 copies, about 41,000 copies. That's, you know, Daredevil's not classically a high seller. So, you know, you love Daredevil in spite of his dispopularity. That's but, you know, that, those aren't terrible numbers when you're talking about, like, when we're talking about Spider-Man selling, you know, 60,000 plus, and on the flip side of things, later Spider-Girl selling, you know, 12,000 copies. Those are not bad numbers for Daredevil, who has not historically been, like, the most popular eye-grabbing character. And that is something I keep in mind, that Daredevil is, in many ways, the lowest-rung big name, at least prior to the Netflix series. The Netflix series changed a lot of things for the character, for which I am very grateful. But the truth is, while Daredevil does carry his own pretty recognizable cast of side characters, even before the TV show, you know, popularity has never really been the province of Daredevil. It's Hell's Kitchen, and that's where he stays. So, you know. But he also did have enough juice in his Daredevil one-shot banks that the popularity of the Return of Tarantula gave way to a one-shot, Daredevil Blood of the Tarantula, which was released in August of 2008, once again by Ed Brubaker, but penciled by Guy who would go on to define Daredevil for four fucking amazing years. We have Chris Samney on pencils and inks, colors by Daredevil mainstay Matt Hollingsworth, and letters by Chris Eliopoulos. I have to be honest, I, for whatever reason, just could not find the sales figures on this one. I searched and just could not get them. So rather than worry too much, I'm just going to assume that as a one-shot with Daredevil's name on it, we could probably put it somewhere in the neighborhood of plus or minus 10% of the annual. Assume that the lowest this thing sold was probably about 30,000 copies at the worst, but I can't really see this thing selling some sort of mammoth, you know, Magnum XL 50,000. That's just not going to happen for this fucking book. It's funny because it could go one of two ways. It's a one-shot, so low investment. People would buy it because it's a Daredevil story. It seems cool, and they know they're not going to now have to get the number two if they're interested. But then also, it's Black Tarantula, who is not himself a very uh, eye-grabbing character. So, you know, I could see this really interesting people to the point where, surprisingly, the sales were the best that you would predict. And I could also see people going, oh, it's just some one random issue of Daredevil about a dude I don't really know, so I'm going to skip. And at the time, he was becoming a pretty major player in the pages of Daredevil and would go on to appear in the next run. And that's always a big thing when somebody adds a character that wasn't necessarily a part of the title's overall view prior to that and they managed to stay around, that's a, a pretty good sign of lasting success on a title. Now, you know, for my money, the Ed Brubaker run was not always my favorite run of Daredevil in a lot of ways. I felt that it was not, you know, un- not unpleasantly per se, but vaguely a rehash of a lot of what Bendis had just done a few years earlier for several years. All that aside, the Black Tarantula involvement for Daredevil really was a cool thing to be part of at the time and rereading these issues really helped me feel like, yeah, this is probably partially why I'm so into this character because he really did imprint on me at this time. But unfortunately, that does sort of seem to be the end of superheroic Black Tarantula 
for some time in the Marvel Universe as he just makes a handful of minor appearances going forward, many of which are vaguely villainous, uh, like the recent Deathlock series that they tried launching, you know, maybe six, seven years ago. So I don't always feel great about the legacy that Black Tarantula ultimately left at Marvel, but I do remain a big fan of his potential. And I hope that this six issues that we're going to look at for Black Tarantula does bring that to the forefront or maybe to light for readers that didn't really get it from Spider-Girl. We're on a mission here. And the other part of that mission is a desperate attempt to like Thunderstrike. Uh, You know, he is maybe the biggest disappointment of our MC2 post-review. There has just truly been no great Thunderstrike in the 10 issues of Asgardians of the Galaxy, of which I am very excited to discuss. I feel very confident saying that there's one really great scene with him and he's in a bunch of others. That's just not how you want to describe something that you've looked forward to and done a lot of work on. Yeah, I think the only other thing I could say is, for the most part, he slots into this cosmic Marvel mythological Asgardian team storyline. He slots in very plausibly in a way that while I didn't see the best work written for him in this book, if you told me that he was going to be something in something else by a writer that I really liked, I would pick it up out of interest. I have not given up hope for this character. And I think a lot of that falls to the excellent work of Cullen Bunn, who really carries a banner for this character. He clearly has respect and understanding for the, I hate to say it this way, but the sloppy nature of Thunderstrike's <laughs> previous canon. It's just sloppy. And that's not even an attack on Tom DeFalco, but that's a, an attack on the fact that it seems like one of the biggest consistencies that we have to talk about on this show is that the works that Tom DeFalco was doing really did not have the editorial support that you could see his contemporaries have, and I don't know if that was perhaps, you know, an old guard kind of thing, certainly not coming for Joe Quesada or any of the other creators at that time, but you do sort of get a sense at, at points that Tom DeFalco was just not the most popular guy in the office, and perhaps that's why he didn't get love, but seeing his work, Black Tarantula, who was his character, show up under the pen of Ed Brubaker, one of the most award-winning comic writers of his era and genre, being a modern noirist, and under the pen of, I think, like Eisner and Harvey winning Cullen Bunn. You know, Cullen Bunn might not be everybody's cup of tea, but I am hard-pressed to find a Cullen Bunn story that doesn't adequately perform its job. And he's definitely one of those creators that, you know, this is a notch on Thunderstrike's cap, that he has been written by Cullen Bunn, I think lends some plausibility to the idea that he might be an interesting character to put in the next thing. So, speaking of interesting characters, showing up in things. The creative team on As Guardians of the Galaxy is a fucking wild ride. It ran November 2018 to August 2019, all written by Cullen Bunn and all lettered by Corey Pettit. However, that's about the only consistency on the title. While every issue does feature colors from Frederico Blee, there are assistants from Eric Arseniega, Jill Thompson, and Mike Del Mundo on the third issue. They would also be responsible for their own pencils and 
and inks in that same issue. However, the predominant volume of pencils and inks came from Matteo Loli, who did the pencils and inks on issue 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 8. While he did receive help on a number of those issues, like on issue 4, he had penciling assistance from Natasha Bustos on issue 5, from Luca Maresca and Stephanie Hans, he would ultimately give the title over to a number of incredible artists. Issues 6 and 7 would see Matteo Buffagini, as well as Stefano Landini, pinch hit, while issue 9 sees Paolo Villanelli, and issue 10 sees the return of Luca Maresca. Most of those pencilers did their own inking, or at least are credited with the inks on that title. There is actually no inker credited on as Guardians of the Galaxy, who is not also credited as a penciler, and that is very this time at Marvel. I don't know if it's a cost-saving technique, but it definitely feels a way and kind of shows up a way. Chaos. <laughs> yeah. Chaotic is the vibe that you get. But speaking of the vibe that you get, I do need to mention that I am ultimately very disappointed for this book by its sales figures. You know, we're never really talking about a real runaway hit when we're talking about like a secondary title like this. And that's just kind of a, a truth of Marvel. When something has that vaguely, oh, this is the side title vibe, Marvel never really gives it the full chance that it deserves. We see that over and over again. We see it, you know, with this book at least twice between the two crossovers that it's sandwiched with. And the sales on this title really do reflect that. You know, we often wondered how it was possible that Spider-Girl could make it so long with such crushingly low numbers. But when we take a look at the numbers here, they ultimately find themselves crushingly low quickly. And it is a very, very short drop to the bottom. We start things off at about 41,000 copies for number one. But the next month, we immediately fall to just south of 25,000 copies. The last issue to initially clear the 20,000 copy bar is issue three. The only time it ever comes close again is issue nine. It does clear 22,000 copies, but every other issue is between 15 and 18,000 copies. Okay, well, my low was 11, so I'm glad we, we beat that. Yeah, this is just, you know, a situation where you have to ask if the creative team was getting those numbers and feeling broken by it. Like, not to project, but I know that when I have a project that doesn't go over the way I thought it would, like, you know, I've loved doing this MC2 project, and I actually want to thank, like, the like legitimately the incredible number of listeners that have listened with unbelievable consistency to this project. It, it certainly hasn't gone unnoticed, and I am so grateful to the people that have actually, like, kept going into the weirder stuff. <laughs> you know, we're not really just doing MC2 anymore, and I have to imagine for many listeners, that can make it kind of hard to figure out what you're exactly listening to, but we've tried to be as communicative as we could during the episodes themselves, and, you know, our audience has been so tremendous in interacting with us uh, about this project. So, I know there's times that I see something that I've worked really hard for, and really hard toward, not necessarily get the love I'd hoped for. And, I kind of wonder if as Guardians of the Galaxy, which 
really reads like Cullen Bunn's love song to so many recent and currently ongoing storylines. I really wonder if he had to feel pretty dissuaded from that passion as the book continued to slow its sails. I'd also be really curious to know if there was any sort of like fist shaking at the sky when you started to see Thor interact with the Guardians of the Galaxy in the MCU to the point where post Love and Thunder, I feel like a, a title like As Guardians of the Galaxy would be almost recognizable to a whole audience of people that would take some interest just based off of kind of the wordplay and the fusion of these two things. And I just feel like this was so not its time. And on top of that, while I have so much respect for the diverse and odd group of characters that were chosen for the book, unless you're a diehard comics person, bit of a tough sell on a lot of these. I could not agree more. This was a clear labor of love, and I really want that on the record. You can hear just how passionate all of these creators are for these for these characters in these stories, but just like we said of Spider-Girl, there isn't always a great way to connect that to your audience, and this is going to sound so off-topic, and you know what? It probably fucking is, but I was talking with my husband, uh, Kevo, you know, producer over on The Billy Club, contributor to Exodus for Podcast co-host of HTML. You know, can't say enough amazing uh, titles for Kevo. And one of the big things was he was like, I never realized that you loved like TV movies from like this, the 80s and 90s so much because it had just come up in conversation. And I was like, oh, I watched them a lot with my, my aunt. She was a big fan. So we would watch them together. And it always struck me interesting that people made fun of them so much, but they're not just popular. They're a fucking industry. And if you don't think the TV movie of the week gave way to the Hallmark movie, then I don't know what you've been watching and the thing of it that you know i think i'm trying to get at is there was never really that big a market for the tv movie of the week there were fewer choices and as soon as there were more choices we saw the tv movie of the week's ratings plummet i do not believe that means that we are making inferior television films i believe that that means we are seeing a greater selection of product available that's why niche markets have captured that vibe of the tv TV movie, whether it's Lifetime Movie Network, whether it's Hallmark Murders and Mysteries or whatever goddamn Hallmark Christmas movie murder. It makes my dad so happy. <laughs> I'm not here to come for it. Old people love Hallmark, you know, and, you know, I'm I'm old people because I love Food Network, so I'm not coming for anybody. But it's really interesting that comics haven't exactly found a way to do that yet. I don't feel I don't think like I can look at Marvel and point at their 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 current offerings and say, oh, right, they have an option for things that probably wouldn't sell as well. The closest I think you come is perhaps X-Men Unlimited, because maybe, just maybe, they would have run the things in X-Men Unlimited and let them be low sellers, but just about every other Infinity comic, I do not think they would have sold. I think it just wouldn't exist, and creating something that wouldn't exist is not the same thing as servicing an under 
underappreciated minority of existent buyers. I'm so fascinated to see if at any point the, it does start to make sense to create a workflow for writing a book or a series that if it's doing 10 to 15,000, that's what's expected and that's what's good. Is there any way to make that work or is it just automatically too much work has gone into the book? And, you know, is the Infinity Comics really do speak to kind of that idea, but because they are packaged with the Marvel Unlimited the subscription service, it feels a little bit different. And I've often said lately that I would be willing to tack on like an extra $5 a month that was just towards new content, new digital content, because I do want to see these stories get created and I do want to see people get paid. And I really would love to see something where the expectation is not, you know, 60,000 issues sold, but like 15, that's really solid and everybody's happy with that. And there's this reality that without getting too industry specific, let's use the imagined identity of acting, right? And let's say we know that actors make different amounts of money for different films. We should then be able to see comics creators make different amount of money for different projects. At the same time, I'm the first person that says, if somebody offers you overtime, my then next statement is, kind of sounds like then you think I'm worth that much money all the time. Why am I not getting paid that if that's my worth? Okay, so we have a situation where fiduciarily, you cannot afford to pay everyone top dollar for work that won't earn top dollar. It goes right back to that numbering argument. So it becomes a reality where everybody kind of has to have a portfolio of big books and small books and that should make it sound like there should be a handful of big books and more small books but because everything is about making the most money possible there isn't room to allow for the small books to percolate and develop and come into their own being if something's not a hit right away it'll never be a hit and we kill it but tell that to the first season of Seinfeld that couldn't clear first place past an aging ailing Doogie Hauser. so think about how long it might take something. I believe the statistic is that Game of Thrones never went down in ratings. I believe the statistic is it only went up. Are you saying that Game of Thrones was a flop and should have been killed at season one? It's a really hard conversation, and I think Spider-Girl has become a really beautiful platform for discussing it. And I think this book is another one in that same vein. I mean, this is not something that I know a lot of people that based on their comics interest I would recommend. It's not something that I would think to pick up immediately, but it is this really tight, contained story with a bunch of characters I find interesting. If I thought about it more and it was something that was like part of comics culture that smaller books like this were being produced, I would be interested in them. Like Again, I go back to the characters that are in here because it feels like if you subbed out Angela for like Gamora and this Valkyrie for the Valkyrie that is in the MCU, like you could have slightly adjusted things to try and advertise this as a blockbuster but very clearly that was not done and specific choices were made to use character the only character besides destroyer that is recognizable from the mcu is scourge played by carl urban carl urban i always get so close to saying keith urban and i carl urban amazing man fantastic actor oh my god this is the first time i just realized they are probably not the same person probably not but i don't know that we can be 100 sure i've never seen them in the same room it's like i've never seen the mona lisa and santa claus 
claws in the same room. So I'm not convinced that that painting doesn't come the fuck off the walls and give out fucking presents. Stay woke, people. Carl Urban as Scourge is the most recognizable character for a lot of audiences. And he just, he's really cool and funny in the Thor movies, but he's not the big name character in any of those. So a really conscious choice was made to pick some very obscure and weird characters. And that is automatically, by definition, going to limit who gets interested in the book. And it feels like for the creative team, this is totally by design. But then from a sales perspective and a can we get more stories out of this perspective, it like it should not have been designed this way because you're almost guaranteeing that there's a hurdle that it probably can't clear. And, you know, I just I would love to see a bit of a shift in the culture where those creative intentional choices can be celebrated as providing value to a niche market in such a way that is worthwhile for the company rather than just what can we do that might sell more than we're hoping. And at the end of the day, the thing that I care the most about is a vital, thriving industry that can support the needs of its fans, the livelihoods of its creators, and the potentiality for continued success along multi-generational, multicultural fan bases. That's what I want. That should be the goal of any industry. And any more proof we need that always going the biggest and getting the most insane doesn't make everything better is just look at meta. And I'm not being, you know, crazy, but people make all of these comments about, oh, the Marvel movies are everywhere. Yeah, they might be. But something I don't see everywhere are these comics. People who say that Marvel is only really producing the same five, ten books really isn't looking deeper and isn't taking a look at the wealth of material that's lying just under the surface. For that reason, I do think that as Guardians of the Galaxy, much like Spider-Girl, much like its use of Thunderstrike, provides something that Marvel needs to lean into a little bit more, which isn't just the unique boutique run, because, you know, I'm here for the boutique run. I just praised Chris Samney's run on Daredevil, which was essentially a boutique run with Mark Wade. You know, and by boutique run, I mean a run that purposely looks and sounds a little different than everything else coming out to give it a unique identity that stands alone. We also saw that from Hawkeye by David Aja, Annie Wu, and Matt Fraction. We saw that from the pages of She-Hulk by Charles Sewell. This is a very prominent way to give a book a new identity, to help revitalize a line. You know what? I would call X-Factor by Leah Williams and David Baldone boutique for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And with that in mind, I think that might be the best way to bring back Brack to bring back Black Tarantula, you know, yeah. to sort of jump into that content for a little bit here. The Black Tarantula is the kind of character that is more myth than man. And when you're dealing with a character that's more myth than man, you always need to be thinking about the reinvention of myth. There are very few myths that tell in exactly the same way. I'm looking you all in the eye right now. And if somebody tells me that Ridley Scott is going to get Russell Crowe to play King Arthur, I'm going to gouge my eyes out like it's fucking Oedipus Rex. I can't do this anymore. I can't do the same boring reinvention of the same boring trope. If it's a reinvention that I've seen before, it is no reinvention at all. And I think the solution to that is trust 
interesting things like as Guardians of the Galaxy to be themselves a bit more because the main complaint I'm going to have when we get to as Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a complaint that I've had about a lot of the material we've looked at the last couple of months, actually, in our post-MC2 coverage, has been the effect of the narrative crossover over ensconcing the nature of the story itself. It becomes tough because it always gives you this feeling of hope when a book like As Guardians of the Galaxy starts to tie into something like War of the Realms because you think, oh, they're taking it seriously. This is part of the crossover. Like, it matters. But that so quickly can change over into this book is here to serve as a cog in the machine of the crossover and really in and of itself does not super matter. And that was, I think, one of our biggest complaints about most of the tie-ins to the Spider-Verse event. We were really disappointed by how many of the titles just sort of felt like we were told they go here, but they served no relevant stake in this larger story. And that larger story told us that every spider character was relevant. Well, if every spider character was relevant, you couldn't even make titles with multiple spider characters relevant. And, you know, I feel like at some point in this conversation, we definitely got off track of, you know, what we meant to talk about, which is sort of like a slice of three different decades looking at these characters. But in many ways, I feel like we're pulling together many threads and looking at it as a holistic picture. Spider-Girl suffers from the same thing that made Spider-Verse a success. And that's an overall feeling that the character is simply a vehicle for story sales, not an investment in a property that is going to stand on its own over time. And I feel as Guardians of the Galaxy falls into the same sort of mess and maybe even Black Tarantula's inclusion in Daredevil. If you're going to say that this thing isn't special enough to stand on its own and thus it must be connected to something else for its value, this young female hero isn't strong enough to be her own superhero, so she must be spider someone. And Black Tarantula isn't strong enough to stand on his own, so he must be in Daredevil. And same token, as Guardians of the Galaxy, none of these characters as Guardians or the Guardians of the Galaxy are strong enough to stand on their own title. What if we do a fusion? It certainly works at times, because look at the success of Spider-Verse, which gave way to Spider-Geddon, which gave way to Edge of Spider-Verse returning, which gave way to somehow a new volume of Spider-Man following Spider-Verse again. (laughs) We're never going to be done with this shit. No, sir. But it certainly is an element of this discussion that I never would have expected since Spider-Girl herself really never truly had a crossover. Yeah, it's it's something that like when you put it that plainly, it's 100% correct, but you just never think of it like that. I don't want to say that like I stockholmed myself into reading Amazing Spider-Man 436 through 439. If for no other reason, the people of Stockholm deserve better. But I was like, okay, Teak, let's read 436 because it's got Fabian. And then, oh, 439 has an appearance from Spider-Girl and it's Tom DeFalco's last issue. And then I'm looking and 437 has the Gen X kids and 438 has Daredevil. And so we read four issues of Tom DeFalco's Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. I feel like actually maybe you Stockholmed me 
Yeah, that sounds about right. You're, you're holding me hostage to these issues of Spider-Man where I'm like, oh, they're actually really cool. They actually wound up really cool. And <laughs> I by no means think that there's a need to read every page of something to really understand it. I'm not going off on this crazy tangent into the very strange world of 90s Spider-Man. And I'm going to talk about why it's strange. I'm not just, you know, picking at anybody. There's some story storytelling techniques that I think have aged maybe less graceful. But as soon as we kick off with Amazing Spider-Man 436, the about this issue on Marvel Comics Unlimited says the big reveal, the black tarantula's motive for returning to New York is revealed as well as the Rose's true identity. I have to be clear with you, this the Rose guy, this Jake Connolly, he doesn't even come back up in the next three issues. No. So one of the major functions of this issue, one of the big things that they like push that this issue is significant for i'm shocked <laughs> i guess i'm not really <laughs> It's a that's like such a comics thing to have happen. And because we were on such a mission with completely unrelated other things, it's one of those things where I just I forgot that like the publisher and the creative team had their own intentions when they actually created this that, you know, now that I'm looking at it, they maybe failed to follow up on those intentions because my intentions for reading it, they did a great job of getting what I needed out of this. Yeah, there is really nothing about this particular issue 436 that I don't think at least works on its own. The Eric Cartman reference is sort of shocking, I guess. I don't know who that South Park reference is for because I'm not sure who this issue is for. But that it was an example of like, I feel like that is used properly, timing wise, who's saying it, how it's being said, whereas I can't even pick a good Spider-Girl reference off the top of my head, but at the same time, we were getting little pop cultural references that were just in Correct. And there's so much about this story that has my attention. And some of what has my attention is the really good 90s art. Oh. It's pretty good 90s art, man. It's Peter's looking fucking out of control hot. And, and, you know, Mary Jane has this very stark kind of pouty, very angular face. And yet it's almost JRJR-esque. And it's got a little bit of pop art to it. There are these pages where she's really giving him the stare down and it just feels like you know you could blow it up and frame it and it's a Liechtenstein like it I was very surprised when we started to get into the personal panels how like great everybody looked in a way that is singularly 90s and speaking of great from right off the bat Black Tarantula is like you know Spider-Man I don't want to kill you so <laughs> don't make me and he's so strong that he's taking down the droid it's interesting that he is significantly smaller than his son <laughs> yes. I have to imagine part of that is an artist's conception, though. Yeah. And it's just funny because Joe Bennett drew the Hulk. So uh -huh. if anybody was like, yeah, let me lean into super big, you'd think Joe Bennett would get in there. But, you know, it's a different thing at the point at which we get Black Tarantula and Spider-Girl. He needs to be larger than life. But I guess even if he mopped the floor with Spider-Man, as Spider-Man says, 
because he would still need to be believably defeatable. Yeah, you know, not not superhuman in that way where he's inconceivable, but we definitely... And, I, you know, I really do think the dialogue sells it. And right off the bat, you get that this is going to be a different kind of villain because he really is saying, I absolutely could kill you in a second, and I will if you don't cut it out, but I have no need to, and please be on your merry way because I'm going to keep villaining, but it doesn't have to have anything to do with you. Which is really what we always wanted from Black Tarantula's crime side. We were always a little wary about putting May with, you know, a crime guy. He does crimes. So we were always a little nervous about that. But that Black Tarantula sets the precedent that he's like, no, we actually don't get involved. And that's why he would never try to kill Spider-Girl if he didn't have to. There's like actually a vision to this that plays out over a really long story. And it was one of the things that impressed me right off the bat, that there's this common thread between the two characters that are, you know, father and son from an alternate universe. So it's not necessarily the Fabian that we're going to see here will be getting these same lessons, but that it's part of the tarantula code and mythos that, yeah, they're criminals. Yes, they do crimes. They are not heartless and evil, and they're not necessarily looking to plow through every single obstacle that comes in their way. They can see the goodness in a hero and say, please just don't get involved because what I'm doing has nothing to do with you and I would like for you to walk away from this. That You don't get a ton of villains like that in Marvel Comics overall and I think it's something that makes the character stand out and really speaks to this idea that if you want to know what makes a black tarantula, here's a pillar of Speaking of pillars of the black tarantula... <laughs> I just about pissed myself yeah. when our best little man showed up. Oh, he's so adorable. I was so happy Chesbro was here. I just didn't want a black tarantula out there in the world without his Chesbro. No. They're Chesbros. They are Chesbros. He needs him. I, I did love that he's just a little sad and pathetic looking. And I know it's just his glasses, but the way that they have rendered him on page six of the digital. The, the cower? Yes, with his eye. It's, it looks like he has just big, like, animated doe eyes. It's just his glasses. But, like, between his little sad frown, he just... This is a Chesbro that we have never seen before. You know, again, pillar of Black Tarantula is that he has a Chesbro. Pillar of Chesbro is that he is ride or die for Black Tarantula no matter what. Even if he's in a sunny, good disposition and, you know, is taking care of business, that's one way of going about it. This is a kind of a weird little goblin baby Chesbro, but I just, I still love him. I do. And I love him, but I don't really give a shit about goblin baby Fabian. <laughs> nothing nothing against him. I'm not like, kill the kid, but No, he's it's... a MacGuffin though. He's It's just a MacGuffin kid. Yeah, I mean, like, he literally is just like, I'm playing with paper planes! Like, I, I understand like he's like six here or something. I, I don't know. I think six year olds in 1992 were like, where's my game gear? Well, this Mom. is weird because you really, if you told me that he's 12, just from looking at the art, basically plausible. He's also sitting on his mom's lap playing with a paper plane. So if you tell me he's six, basically plausible. It further speaks to the idea that this is not a kid, like a person that we're going to have to interact with his personhood. It is an object that is being held by one parent in a custody battle that is getting physical where the other one is coming to be part of the fight. And I do appreciate what Marina offers. I wonder if perhaps she would be strengthened by reading more issues, but I don't know that that's really part of this project. You know, that's not what we're here to 
track. We're trying to track the realities of the MC2 universe. And while Marina as the, again, you're right, plot MacGuffin device person woman, there's actually kind of like a fun parallel to Man Without Fear. And we know that was something that DeFalco really liked. So I do like the sort of, oh, college, it was a crazy time. Everybody (laughs) was sexy. And I like that, that spirit to it. It felt like something I wouldn't see in a modern comic where there's just all of these little side narratives going off all over the place. You know, oh, we were married, but then I ran away with the kid. Oh, and here's my new boyfriend. This, I don't know, he looks like a tire named Dante. (laughs) And Dante's like, oh, I'm a really good guy. You know, it's that thing where anybody's like, no, I'm a good guy. You can ask anybody, right? I don't think he's a good guy. No, automatically he sucks. Right? I'm not going to make the joke, but there's a number of TV movies that start this way. (laughs) There's a really fun page where they're just showing me Peter Parker's ass. Like, they just keep sticking it in my face, which is not something I'm complaining about, but it is hard to kind of miss. It all feels very of its time in that way where this feels like a creative team that watched a ton of Melrose Place and said, let's spice up Spider-Man. So, like, it's nonsense flashbacks that explain why things are the way that they are and they just involve, like, people being sexy and then at the same time you've got Spider-Man who's just full-on ass in your face and it's just, like, it's not for straight men or straight women. It's just for sexy for whoever should be watching at the time. It is a very 90s sensibility about what is steamy and dramatic and thrilling and the fact that it is kind of aimless when it comes to hitting those goals is actually part of the charm because it doesn't really seem like it is trying to underhandedly trick you by giving you tastes of what it thinks you most want. It looks like it is broadly observing trends of the time regarding what is popular in media and just fucking around with them. And there's a sincerity to that that I really enjoy. Yes, I really do enjoy the sincere, honest-to-goodness embracing of what this book seeks to be. There's a lightness that I really think is great because you're right. I In my head, I'm going, Jake is flipping the drink behind the bar at Shooters. Like, I get what you're saying because I do get that vibe. But there's also then the cosmically embarrassing elements of that vibe that you can't escape. Like, for instance, what the fuck is this Don Fortunato and the Rose thing? I need to point out, there's actually multiple characters named the Rose. And one of them, I would say, is kind of a big fucking deal. You might know him as Richard Fisk, the son that Wilson Fisk attempted to have resurrected. He is a pretty big deal character. This, however, is a version of the Rose who initially appeared in Daredevil 131 in March of 1976. (laughs) He would then appear in January of 1984's Amazing Spider-Man 248. He is inexplicably in an issue of Avengers, an X-Factor annual, and Web of Spider-Man all in the 80s before showing up in the Phil Urich Green Goblin series, the fourth issue in 1996. He then made a bunch of appearances in some Spider-Man books, but this guy wound up with like 30 plus appearances in about three years, ultimately finding his final appearance in Spider-Man Made Men number one from August of 1998. So right around this time, actually. So 
he actually has one more appearance and then he's done. It's interesting because his final appearance isn't written by Tom DeFalco. So where this leaves off this Jake Conover thing, it's going to pick up by Howard Mackey, a longtime big name at Marvel and the rest of the creative team equally unrelated, Norman Felchi on art and inks with John Calise on color. So it's not even like it's really a major Spider-Man work. It's actually a bit more of a Ben Urich story. It features Ben, Daredevil, his wife Doris, uh, Ben's wife Doris, not Daredevil's wife Doris. The Punisher, you know, it's got it's got Cap, I think. There's a lot of stuff in it that it has canon, but I would never think that from this if I hadn't gone ahead and done a shit ton of research. This is the definition of a DeFalco poll. Yes. This yes, random it is. character from the 70s that, you know, plausibly is part of a hero's canon, but really hasn't been used that much. DeFalco ends up pulling him in for a bunch of stuff. DeFalco then can't put the toy down and just keeps using it over and over again. And then suddenly it just stops because it's just not something anybody else is going to be interested in. Yeah, that is pretty much what seems to have happened here. And I love a DeFalco poll. They're really silly. And sometimes this is a great example of how a lot of times they show up and it adds to the nonsense that this person is here that just doesn't feel like already Black Tarantula is a little bit obscure if you're not diehard into what's going on in Spider-Man right now. But, you know, to then go to the Rose and it's not even the more recognizable Rose and their appearance in the book is being kind of shepherded to by this soap opera plot storyline. And you got this dude with his sweater tied around his neck being like, uncle, uncle. It's it's very odd and very melodramatic. And it's not served by the rest of the issue, sort of forgetting about anything but the Black Tarantula kill droid Spider-Man battle. Black Tarantula is trying to get his hands on Fabian and Marina. And it's really interesting because they do bring up the whole, I have to begin training him, the rite of ascension and transcendence. And yeah. Like, I mean, that really is, it's here. So when they reveal it in Spider-Girl, I'm like, why didn't you guys drop a fucking editor's box? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and that we're getting this much. It's a surprisingly succinct and detailed amount of background and canon and story that this dude who is not going to be an especially, I mean, this might not even be a B-list villain. This might technically be a C-list villain, but that we know the kind of man that he is, that he's a villain, but he's one that doesn't want to hurt Spider-Man if he can avoid it, that we know he has a legacy that carries out through all the, through the centuries that it's something that he has to train the next generation for that that's why he's here having the world's most violent custody battle with his wife this is a lot to put into this one character in one issue and i mean that in a very positive way and it's that value that i think we saw in these characters and wanted to pursue reading more of this and yes. that's what brought us to these issues of amazing spider-man yep the issue really does just sort of end with for whatever reason black tarantula just like stalking off and i'm fine with it it's not like it needed to do a whole lot more than that to serve its purpose it seems like this was tom defalco knowing he was leaving and putting the black tarantula in a safe place so that the character would be waiting later on you know best laid plans i don't think that black tarantula got a whole lot of play until brubaker but it was a really interesting way to send off a character that he picks back up not too far into spider girl yeah and left on the board in such a way that it remains plausible that we could get Fabian as the Black Tarantula that we know and love in the 616 at some point in the future. Speaking of young characters who have 
grown into something amazing now. Sync has become one of the most like beloved members of the X-Men in the last few years, and it is such a great thing because the guy was due his time. I'm fine with this iMonster, very Stanley body horror issue. You know, okay, we've got kind of like a, a man spider body horror thing and plant man. That's embarrassing. But the Gen X appearance is cute. Yeah, it's funny. It is out of nowhere. Synergy, I guess, is all I can really say about it. This is a perfectly fine, fun one-off. I love Gen X so much that I would never say no to something like this. I do love that it is Sync that is the character that is focused on. We never have enough black male protagonists in comic books, and it is really refreshing to read it now where we are seeing Sync much more get his due. Raphael Kayanan's pencils on this, not just with Sync, but he does a couple quick shots of the rest of Gen X and it's a treat to get to see other people do Gen X art. So that was worth it for that alone. In that act, that first Gen X group shot that I also really appreciate, I had a little trouble naming the characters to yeah. be honest. I was like, okay, Paige is on the lower left. Sync is the big hunk of muscles in the front. We've got Skin to his right, Jono up and behind him. I guess that's Banshee flying in. Yeah. I struggled to figure out who the woman in the upper right was, but it is an unfortunately poorly colored Monet. That was my concern. I might have to just headcanon this into that is actually Paige and bottom left is Emma. Because if Sean oh. is wearing the training outfit, then bottom left could conceivably be Emma, you know, doing telepathy fingers. Okay. And I love that for some reason, Jubilee is wearing a Moira McTaggart mask and costume. <laughs> And she's just here to be having a good fucking time, guys. <laughs> yeah, it is slight nonsense. I really, I, I think that if I had to guess, that is an improperly colored Monet, which I hate to think about. That is how it is credited on the internet, yeah. That is so unfortunate. And you know, it's it's doubly unfortunate because skin is not colored properly insofar as um, he is a odd shade of pink that doesn't make sense for the characters we know him who has kind of gray skin but if you're going to do anything he should then be a darker color because he is a Latinx man and that we just missed the mark so severely with both of these characters is unfortunate i can't say a lot more than that yeah i am very much in the same category and it's a tragic problem that we still see on these characters to this day it's a truth that comics tend to lean like in skin tone and it's an unfortunate truth and it needs to change we should feel much more comfortable embracing the full spectrum of darker skin tone the way we have lighter skin tone i would never think that this was a bunch of multi-ethnic characters on this panel i would assume it's a bunch of white people and also one guy who is vaguely not white i don't know that sync really comes across with the sort of blackness that his features also deserve in every panel, especially because he becomes so grotesque so quickly. But all in all, all said and done, other than essentially coloring issues, this was a really fun appearance of Sync. I struggle with the fact that I think Sync maybe gets sidelined pretty quick, but 
it was just it was fun yeah it was fun it was cool i think sink was a character that people had a lot of trouble writing because of the way that his powers worked and i would hope that people were at very at the very least cautious about writing a black male protagonist and taking that seriously so you can see where mistakes get made or there's a tenuousness that goes beyond what's really needed for the character they do kind of figure out a way for him to use his powers and to get in the fight and you know he he proves himself capable of fighting alongside spider-man which is at the end of the day all you really need from it fun funny 90s one shot what else can you say about it that's essentially most of my notes if i have a real kind of moment in it it's spider-man's like fine then i'm gonna overdose you on your own plant stuff (laughs) and now you're a plant monster so now you're going to give me the antidote it's one of those like batman is not going to kill you but he doesn't have to save you either spider-man is like well you know if you get fucked up by your own plants that's fine with me i could help you out but i don't have to yeah yeah that's really you know this feels like a halloween issue that didn't get released around halloween maybe this just is an issue it it's light it's fun i'm not coming for it in the least i think that if i have any complaint about it it's that it could have used a little bit more time if this had been written in a more modern setting we might have gotten a little bit more of the internalization of sync that would have perhaps enhanced my reading experience but as a reader as somebody who is looking for fun story that doesn't always need to dramatically transform what i'm reading okay they'd wanted to let it run a little longer this could have been a this could have been spider-man and the generation x-men spider-man hangs out with the current batch of students for four issues would have been really fun especially with gen x he was also frequently running around with x-man at this point yeah and so there was like a lot of precedent with gen x running around with x-man and there's really an opportunity to have some fun with these characters and have some fun with how spider-man used to be the carefree teen and he's grown into a borderline carefree adult man who has some issues but this was probably in my mind a stronger issue than 436 and was just a surprise when i was on marvel unlimited i saw that that would be a good read for us and i'm really glad that we took the time to dial into a little bit more of what made tom defalco such a household name on spider-man yeah couldn't agree more i maybe don't have the same romantic relationship with 438 (laughs) featuring my precious daredevil and it has nothing to do with like oh well daredevil didn't Like, I don't feel like Daredevil was underserved or didn't fit my needs here, but this, I wasn't sure why this particular story existed. This felt like a story that had been sitting in DeFalco's back pocket since late 70s, early 80s, and just happened to slot in nicely here. It is a, again, a one-off, fun, silly, sure, but where the Gen X one feels a little bit exciting because it is young characters it's the next generation of x-men there is this weird body horror aspect and some comedy to it that makes it all just kind of like that was weird and silly this just feels like one of many interactions and adventures that we have seen between daredevil and spider-man not a particularly remarkable one for any aspect of it and one in which it feels like a lot of the plot and dialogue 
dialogue writing beats do not feel like they're of 1998. They really feel like at minimum a decade early. Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it. And I very much agree. It's a really interesting thing that you say this feels like perhaps a desk drawer issue because I think the framework has to have been. This doesn't feel like the Daredevil from this time, Mm -hmm. but the references it makes are so specific to this Kevin Smith era of Daredevil, the law firm he's working at, the side characters, everything going on in the background. They can only be from a very specific time in Daredevil canon. So I am really interested in how that came to be because it reads kind of like one of the misery issues of Spider-Girl. There's somebody who's just kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. I just don't get too much from it. The art is fun. There's times the art is maybe a little bit sloppy. I don't always feel like this is the best work. And it makes sense that we don't have more work from these creators in this run because we're pretty positive on most of the art. And I'm normally a Scott Collins fan. So it's not like, oh, Scott Collins, he's the worst. But, you know, all said and done. I actually have just about anything, just about nothing to say here about this issue because I found myself confused at times. I wasn't sure how they were trying to communicate the real versus unreal, uh, you know, the reality versus unreality. There were some big leaps that I don't know that I took as a reader that the creators expected me to. And this was probably my low issue for this run. Yeah, I completely agree. Art was cool. Definitely a different view of these characters, but it feels like it could have been the backup story in a double issue where whatever the A story was is something I really, really cared about. And then this one was just kind of like a fun little bonus. But because it's on its own and it's so close to the end of this run, not in any way bad or hugely problematic, just like a, I don't really know why we did that. It also feels kind of hollow that this and 439 came out the same month and are the two like end caps to the Amazing Spider-Man run by Tom DeFalco. Yeah. If for no other reason, 439 has like no plot. <laughs> it, I mean, But I, I came to realize something, you know, it's essentially Spider-Man has to save this little girl while separately there is an ongoing story that in the future they're, you know, researching the age of heroes and they're coming across a ton of Spider-Man's, you know, relics and things from the Onslaught era. And there's a lot of cool references like that. But ultimately he loses a daughter and he saves a little girl. I think maybe that's what we're meant to take from it. I like seeing all the other spider people, including Spider-Girl. But there's some there's some weird beats in this guy. Yeah, more fantastic Kion and art. I really, really enjoy and appreciate that. You know, the thing I flash to is Spider-Girl the end, just with the flashback from the future storyline that gets us where we are. It feels like DeFalco has a writing style for this flashback retrospective from the future that I recognize similar beats in this, but I don't know that I take away anything from this. Even in terms of Black Tarantula stuff from the brief Black Tarantula mention, there's just nothing here that gives me something that surprises me in the same way that 436 and the amount of punch it gives for Black Tarantula did. This just kind of is, and that's why he's Spider-Man, but from the future. And there's so many big splashes of the Avengers throughout it, almost like needlessly, that I'm Mm -hmm. like, ah, this is where we get the A-next showing up out of nowhere. Right. There were also some interesting 
interesting choices on the art where I'm like, is this little girl going to be revealed to be evil? <laughs> like, there were just some interesting choices. I definitely, if I had been reading at the time, and I know I've only read four issues of this run, so it's a really hard decision for me to make, like a call that I shouldn't necessarily make, but I would have felt kind of disappointed by this ending. It just kind of feels like, and we're done, without really giving me a reason why and we're done. It It's always really cool when an artist looks back at their body of work and says, yeah, this is what I accomplished with this. And I love that. And I love that for Tom DeFalco. We have been really excited enough by his work to do extra reading of his work. But much like we did not love Spider-Girl The End and definitely didn't love the MC2 story in Secret Wars, I find myself pretty resolved on this as a statement of how we feel about Tom DeFalco very frequently. We love big building blocks of the story, but sometimes when we took a step back and looked at the finished building, wasn't really what we wanted. And I think that this was a stylistic choice to go in this kind of more intimate direction of this bow on, you know, tying this whole thing together being, you know, Spider-Man does the thing that he always is meant to do, which is be your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And he goes and rescues the girl that fell down the well, and he'll always be that kind of hero. And that is definitely a choice for doing your kind of retrospective punctuation on your on your run issue. But, you know, there are other choices to make. It could have been one really big, bombastic final issue that just Spider-Man is such an incredible hero. And I think that the stylistic choice to go this direction ju- just doesn't speak to me. I don't, I can't say that for sure, you know, going in the direction of a much bigger one-off story would have spoken to me. But I think that DeFalco lives really well in those big moments. And there are times where that's tough in an ongoing serial book where you do need to have smaller intimate bits. But this is a particular issue in which going big and having that be the note that you go out on is definitely an option. And for him, stylistically, I think it might have been the one that spoke to the quality of his work a little bit better. I'm pretty comfortable giving this a B, all said and done. I liked what I read. Not enough to go back and read like, you know, the complete Tom DeFalco Spider-Man, but glad that we did it. Glad that we have a little bit more understanding of his Spider-Man storyline. And yeah, worth reading. Would probably not read again, but wouldn't tell someone else not to. Yeah. I can say for certain that these two issues, Daredevil Annual and Daredevil Blood of the Tarantula, are probably the first two issues we are discussing in this entire show that I read with intention, where I went out and said, I want to buy that because that is something I regularly buy, as opposed to something that was, you know, given to me or something that I read for the show or because of an event that I felt beholden to. These two issues fall in a period of Daredevil that was pretty crazy critically well received though I think the sales were a bit off of the Bendis heyday and it's tough to talk about Daredevil runs in general because you know there's really so few after a certain point you've got the Miller and then you know there's some breaks in between but after Miller wraps up you get Ann Nascenti followed by DG Chichester you get Carl Kiesel and then there's a little bit of a mess before you're at a straight run of major names Kevin Smith David Mack there's a short run by Bob Gay 
Mayo, then Bendis, then Brubaker, then Andy Diggle, then Mark Wade, Charles Sewell, Chip Zdarsky. I'm done. I'm done naming all of the runs of Daredevil since 1986. That's it. There aren't more. And, you know, when you go to name all of the runs of Uncanny X-Men, you're, you're there for a fucking month. You know what I mean? So with that in mind, every run of Daredevil represents at least 40 issues, right? And that's about a tenth of what's come out since the that point in 1986, right? So these are sort of critical points in a very crime-heavy run that attempted to do the best it could with a sort of murky canon. And I would love to know, just as a Daredevil reader yourself who has read bits and pieces, how did it feel stepping into this very different Daredevil world for you? I think because of the character in question and the background that I had, this really worked for me in ways that I think similar types and styles of stories for Daredevil might not have done. Black Tarantula kind of stands out to me along with Kingpin as being two characters that while often in the villain role and while often willing to do things that I find villainous are complex in a way that goes beyond simple hero-villain dynamics into something that I become much more interested in following long term and to have come from the amazing Spider-Man issue where we really do get that moment of I don't want to kill you Spider-Man you can walk away from this to where we are here it gave me a lot to work with in only positive ways but in the back of my mind I think there was part of me that was thinking like if I did not have this kind of intention to be reading this and this kind of background I maybe would not love this the way that I did. That's a really great perspective and really helps me to understand where you're coming from on this title. I think when you're talking about a crime title, you first have to orient yourself to your perspective on the sort of perspective of what a crime book is. Do you need your good guys to be good guys? Can your good guys be questionable? It really requires that you as a reader make certain decisions, perhaps morally, for your involvement in the story. Not more for your life. We're not saying this is a binding agreement every time you read a, you know, crime story, but Daredevil is never a simple good guy. He always is, you know, sort of a complex machine of fighting his angels and demons. We've talked about Daredevil very recently on the show, you know, in the order that these episodes come out, we did Punisher Wednesday, we did Daredevil 1 through 3 on Friday, and now today, here we are, we're talking about Daredevil again. And always exciting for me, of course, because, you know, there's the Billy Club, our partner series over on the Hubs Plus Network on YouTube. That's Hubs Plus Network over at YouTube where you guys can check out myself and Tori Sheehan talking about Daredevil. We are going from the beginning. We're still in the 60s, but we cut in every other episode news and the going-ons and happenings for Daredevil and multimedia. So this is a really weird contrast because I feel like Tom DeFalco crime stories are generally kind of goofy and Ed Brubaker crime stories are hard ass and that sort of difference of ah I am black tarantula so powerful bring me my child to you know I don't know why there he was played by a vaguely drunk Raul Julia but you know to black tarantula who's like yeah I'm gonna kill some crack dealers what it's such a contrast and our black tarantula Fabian from MC2 he's on that sillier end and the thing we 
think loved about him the most is we never would have questioned it if he went to the hard end. It never would have been a hard sell for us. So this was definitely an eye-opening experience for me, coming to realize the transformational power of multiple runs and multiple creators all having that sort of segmented input on a character coming together over time to create a new zeitgeist for that identity. It's really interesting that we have the character of Black Tarantula as he comes out of Amazing Spider-Man 436, and that's a very dramatic soap opera-y issue. You know, it's, I don't think it's meant to be silly, but it is a little bit over the top, and it ends with Black Tarantula letting his son and his his ex-wife go not have to be a part of his mess. And we pick up with a Black Tarantula here who is a bit beaten down by life, and it feels like a much sadder, much darker story. And I really love that it doesn't just feel like these are two different issues from two different writers in a different time period. So obviously they're going to be different. It feels like this is a character whose life has brought him from this point of like almost silly melodrama to a much more realistically tragic sense of how the world has been unkind to him. And it is a character trajectory that feels relatable and realistic in a way that makes me continue to have interest in following Black Tarantula. I love that read on it. And I think that's even what I was trying to say from the like silliness to the the realism. One of the things that this issue also offers is kind of a different perspective We've talked a lot about how Black Tarantula is so powerful, and they even say he can mop the floor with Spider-Man. So kind of what's the point? You know, Daredevil starts out with the flu, so you're immediately like, well, then how is Daredevil (laughs) fucking normie norm norm over here gonna... Oh, this is a book with a normie, so I should be careful. (laughs) Mr. Normal Face, how is he gonna stand... Oh, Black Tarantula is being drugged by his parole board so that he can't use his powers. Okay. Which led me immediately to some odd, very dark chemical castration parallels. It, off the bat, is very serious. And it's dark and it's sad. And I don't think, given what we've seen of Black Tarantula previously, I don't think that's a bad place to go with the character. Especially because it really is not a huge leap to how we got there. I agree. One of the things that this issue did that I thought was really special was it gave a certain humanity to Daredevil that I think he really needs in terms of this story. You know, Matt Murdock, you are a white man. You are a white man with plenty of money and you are a superhero. And even if sometimes the cops want to kick the shit out of you, the people love you. You don't know what it means to have been in prison this way. You were in prison for six issues. Shut the fuck up. And Black Tarantula has had everything taken from him so that Black Tarantula is like, we've got work for him. He can work for Dakota. I need to point out Dakota North is is a character that if you're a Daredevil reader, you're familiar with her, but you might not realize her origins. Dakota North first appeared in a series about her, Dakota North Investigations. It was a bi-monthly title, originally released in 1986, written by Martha Thomases, with art by Tony Salmons, and colors by Christy Scheel, letters by Jim Novak, and it was edited by Larry Hama, who always has a really great eye for sort of action and thriller and fun. Now, Dakota North, her herself would go on to have something like 60-something appearances in the Marvel Universe, but no more appearances than in Daredevil, where she replaced
replaces Jessica Jones as Daredevil's private eye. So it's really cool to see her here. I maybe don't always love Brubaker's interpretation of her as kind of like fucking rude, but I really like this character and it's other little things like the you want to join the Thunderbolts. Like there's so many great references throughout this that really sort of just enhance the story. Oh my God, chips and salsa. That line took my breath away. (laughs) So without knowing things like the fact that at this point, Matt is publicly daredevil to Foggy. And, you know, everybody knows Matt's identity to the point where like Tarantula is just like, hey, Matt. And, you know, to daredevil. And we've got Dakota North. How did you feel about like trying to contextualize this period for daredevil? I did not worry about it a great deal. And I found that I was completely okay realizing that there was a lot of stuff going on that was important to the story very broadly, but that I could read this annual and the follow-up issue and understand the beats of that story contained within these two issues, understand broadly what's going on with Matt, very much understand what's going on with Black Tarantula, and take a lot away from it without ever feeling like, oh shit, should I go back and read like the five issues that came before this so I can just have a general idea of what's going on. It was another thing that I really respected about this story. I think that if it's ever so, if a story is ever so disconnected from its broader context that you just genuinely don't even pick up on the existence of that context or just don't care at all, that is kind of a loss for the people that are reading your entire run. But if you get to a one shot or a two shot like this and you think like, I cannot possibly understand these two issues unless I go read other stuff, then it's really a loss for somebody who is interested in those particular issues. This is that perfect medium where I see the context, I'm interested, like I could definitely go back and read this and I think I would really enjoy it, but I was not lost at all and I got everything that I was hoping to get out of these issues and I would be really pleasantly surprised if I read more from this run and reread these issues and found that I got even more out of it with that context. I love that take on it and, you know, whether you have the context or not, one of the things I think that works so well about these issues is the art. The art is beautiful on these two issues, especially in the annual. I don't know that there's any page that uses like more than three or four colors on it. It is super engaging and the art really supports the fact that Matt like is so good with Carlos. He never makes me feel like Carlos is a criminal. He makes me feel as though he believes Carlos gives into his baser urges and it's understanding the difference between man who commits crime and man who is a criminal that is the humanity of Daredevil that gets sort of suffused into Black Tarantula through this story. Because I think Matt understands that to a certain degree, if he didn't know his own intentions and he didn't know the line that he won't cross, if he were to look at his own actions from the outside, he is not really that different from somebody like Black Tarantula. And I almost think that that's one of the outcomes of the issue. Yeah. The issue ends on this very sort of O place. I don't think that it ends in an O place in a bad way, but this is an annual. It's meant to enhance the already going narrative of the story, maybe shed a little bit more light. We're well past the age where annuals regularly tell a necessary component, and I think this was an opportunity to get a better sense of a character that was playing a major role in the ongoing story, such that it demanded a follow-up one-shot. I really needed the Blood of the Tarantula one-shot 
to help explore some of what I felt was kind of left dangling. As happy as I was to get this bold, incredible new interpretation of Tarantula, it did feel as though a good portion of his past was being forsaken, or at least just not covered directly. I'm so glad that we got the follow-up, and I just, I think it's funny that you use the word need, like it needed to happen, because this is something that happens so often in comics where I think we do feel that way. We see an issue that ends on not even a cliffhanger, but dangling plot threads in a way that if you want to be really generous to the writer, you go, well, somebody else can pick up on that later. And they've done great character work such that if somebody else wants that character, they've got really cool stuff to work with. But a lot of times it's like, it's not really satisfying unless you can take the threads that you left at the end of one issue that seem really important and tie them together. If not in a one shot, then maybe over an arc or over, you know, a 12 issue run, whatever it might be. We often do not get that at all. So to have had that here and to have had it all really pretty succinctly pulled off in one issue was a rare delight. Though I think everything about that initial issue is greatly enhanced by the content of the follow-up one shot. Blood of the Tarantula really dials into who Carlos was and this idea of Black Tarantula is a hero to his people in a way that kind of makes Daredevil uncomfortable. It's like Daredevil knows that Carlos isn't Punisher, but still doesn't really know what to do with him because Daredevil is one of those, if I can't figure it out, there's no solution kind of people. One of the things that I really loved about this issue was that it wasn't afraid to make Carlos super hot. And he's hot and fly in a, like, you know, like as a Cuban guy, I'm kind of like, I want to see him in a Guayabera shirt. Like, you know, it's hot. That's hot as shit. What? Like, you know, and I thought he was real sexy. This was a suave, charming version of Black Tarantula, which we have yet to get outside of Fabian. Yeah, he's also at times just staggeringly enormous much bigger here yeah the arms i don't know if i'll ever recover really fantastic tattoos he gives off like the way he his his physicality is depicted and the way they dress him you really can understand how if he were at the top of his game if he had all of the money that he feels entitled to as a black tarantula he would have a sort of gravitas and swagger to him that you wouldn't help but be seduced by. But because he has been put in this role of just having lost everything, not just the fame and the status, but, you know, his family, the potential connection to this legacy that has been so important to him, he really truly is laid low and stripped bare of that attitude. The fact that he still manages to come off as powerful and magnetic and sexy and big just sort of speaks to the fact that there is a core to this character that is obvious no matter what situation you put him in. And it really does transcend any idea of hero and villain in ways that make him fascinating to read as either one. That is such a great way to look at it because that's, I think, the way Matt also looks at it. If Matt truly believed that Black Tarantula were a bad man, he simply would not help him. And that's not what we get. We don't get Matt refusing to 
help Black Tarantula. In fact, he definitely has his moment, you know, his sort of uncertainty of what to do. But we walk away with a much more romanticized version of Black Tarantula here than I think we'd had previously. You know, he's evidently under attack from his cousin who is decided he deserves to be Black Tarantula. Fine, I get it. You know, stuff happens. Got crazy problems. But the thing that was so shocking to me was that not only was it not his actual son and ex-wife, but moreover, it was not a conclusion on that story by the end of it. We still don't know exactly what's going on with his family. Which was the most exciting part to me because that's just nothing but potential. And the potential that it offers is a chance to see this character grow. The fact that he's laid low at the end of the story. I mean, number one, I loved seeing him like, it's going to sound horrible, but like him like burning and being like, I'm still the man was horribly erotic. And I'm really disappointed that this should have marked the beginning of a great era for Black Tarantula. And instead, we see a significant decrease in his number of appearances after this in a way that just really bums me out. This is actually toward the end of his run. He'll be in a bunch more Daredevil, including Shadowland, which while he survives, he doesn't do really great through. After his time in Daredevil ends with Daredevil 512, he has seven appearances in the entire Marvel Universe after February 2011. He'll appear in that one issue of Deathlock where he's just a bad guy running a cartel. He appears in an issue of Power Man and Iron Fist, an issue of the 2017 Generation X, an issue of Amazing Spider-Man in 2018, and three issues of a book called Contagion that, you know, we talked about covering Ed Brisson's Contagion. It's not that it's like the worst book or anything, but Black Tarantula is just like physically on panel and does nothing. It's disappointing to hear that only because we've fallen so in love with this character, but it gives me hope because I think nothing that you are talking about really gets at the core that we see in the issues that we've been discussing today. And that means that that is still open for opportunity and possibility for the right writer to come along and give this character the spotlight that he really deserves. It's, I think, the best thing about this project is that we've had so many opportunities to fall in love with characters and honestly sometimes fall out of love with characters. I don't think either of us is really clamoring for more Thunderstrike, although funny enough, it does not look like we are going to be covering as Guardians of the Galaxy 1 through 10 today. So that's going to move to the next episode. This is just this project that won't stop growing. And now that there's more Spider-Verse, it's going to never stop growing. But I'll be happy if in the course of covering Spider-Verse, there's more Black Tarantula at some point, And that keeps the show going. Not because I never want to stop this coverage, but because I haven't stopped being impressed by a lot of the pieces that we've spent the last few months looking at, and few as much as I've enjoyed Black Tarantula. It's disappointing that both Fabian and evidently Carlos meet rather unexciting ends, but it doesn't bother me that these characters are still in places where they can be reaccessed. There's a really cool potentiality to the idea that maybe, now that we haven't seen Carlos that much, maybe Fabian can just be Black Tarantula next time we see a Black Tarantula. And maybe it can be really close to our Fabian. Sure, he was that little kid in 1998, but weirder things have happened in the passage of time. Look how Franklin Richards grew out of being a mutant. So I am hopeful that this isn't the last time Black Tarantula has valuable backstory explored because, you know, just about more than any character, we just spent an hour and a half talking 
talking about six issues. This is a character we feel passionately about. And while this isn't our version, that's even part of the point of this story, isn't it? You know, we followed Spider-Girl, the daughter of Spider-Man. Then we followed Fabian, the Black Tarantula, son of the Black Tarantula. We went back and read some Spider-Man for May, and now we've gone back and read some Black Tarantula for Fabian. Sounds fair to me. And I think these are two great examples of legacies that one of the important things is a core that has to do with the title more than it has to do with the individual. May inherited the Spider-Man or the Spider-Person belief in heroics, belief that, you know, you don't kill, that anybody deserves the opportunity to do better, that she was always rooting for even her villains in a way that sometimes was problematic in and of itself, but that she would not give up on people while trying to save innocence. In that same way, the Black Tarantula line is one that is generational. It's ancestral. Those are hugely important things. And I think there's a cultural component to that as well, that there is an idea that the actions that they take while considered villainous for the purposes of comic book ideas of heroics and villainy are much more complicated than that and often put them much closer to the side of the heroes and protagonists that we generally follow, that there is an over-the-top quality to a Black Tarantula, that there is a physicality and a sexuality. These are all things that I think you pick up on in the MC2 Black Tarantula, and then you really pick up on in the 6161. So it's fascinating to look at these aspects of a character that transcend the individual, and that you would really hope to see used by an author that cared about really delving into what makes a spider person or what makes a black tarantula. So that is the core of our study. What makes Spider-Girl Spider-Girl? Why is she not just a Spider-Man book? And I think we've kind of found what makes Black Tarantula at least Black Tarantula. Maybe not what distinguishes Carlos from Fabian, but I know that now when Marvel's like, what do you want to write? I'm going to be like, Black Tarantula, get out my way. Yeah. And that's for fucking sure. It's bizarre that this project won't stop growing because I think that speaks to the fascination we have with a lot of these ideas. But reasonably speaking, (laughs) there is two more episodes in this part of the project where we're going to take a look at Asgardians of the Galaxy 1 through 10 and then Spider-Geddon, the Spider-Geddon handbook and the proper event itself, including nine issues featuring none other than May Parker. From there, it just makes sense to talk about it because now we have another leg after it. We're going to be taking a look at the origins of Morlin and the Spider-Totem in the pages of J. Michael Straczynski's Amazing Spider-Man. That's going to cover some seven or eight episodes comprised Amazing Spider-Man number 30 to 58, and then 500 all the way up through 545. That's going to include Spider-Man the Other, Spider-Man in the New Avengers Illuminati, as well as appearances in the Fantastic Four, the complete Back in Black event, and I guess, you know, one more day. (laughs) You know, I like, we're gonna, you know, I mean, I don't even know how to talk about it. Like, the writer was like, I don't want to write this, I'm gonna quit. And the editor was like, the fuck you will. And the writer was like, I've got Babylon five money bye <laughs> and the editor was like oh well put my name on it and it's that we ha- still feel the reverberations of it today is speaks Baffling. to both how important it was and how tragic it is that it was important because it really 
did some stuff. Yeah. And then after that, we have one more journey into, I mean, I, I don't know how to count it anymore. I'm so flustered at times. We have one more journey into the Spider-Verse, I think. We have the new Edge of Spider-Verse. I guess we technically have the Edge of Spider-Verse Infinity comic, but I can't see myself covering that quite the same way. And then now we have the new ongoing Dan Slott, Mark Bagley, Spider-Man that will close out the Spider-Verse title. So I guess at the end of Spider-Geddon, it's not done. And ultimately, we don't know. No, no Ultimate Spider-Man. Take that back. At the end of the day, we have no idea if they will announce something very relevant or we're going to get a cameo appearance or even more than a cameo appearance before Edge of Spider-Verse is done. So I'm just kind of waiting on the edge of my seat. I am too. Really, it's the potentiality of where this could take us is actually the fun because I don't know that I'm learning at this point about Spider-Girl. I'm learning things about the way I see that, but I don't know that I'm learning about May anymore. I'm learning about the corporate entity of Spider-Girl and what that means to readers. I'm, you know, I love you. Uh, I love that you're my partner and I love going on this journey with you, you know, in the course of doing this, we've, you know, literally become family. And I don't know that Spider-Girl is part of why our lives are now so forever intertwined, but I sure want to thank her for being part of it. Yeah, she might not be the reason, but she is a very important component. We can be sure that our next two episodes will feature May before some episodes that definitely don't fucking feature Mayday. (laughs) Just didn't exist. Sorry about it, girl. And then maybe some Mayday. But until then, until that one more Mayday. Oh, (laughs) oh, I need that. Teak, where can everybody find you online? You guys know you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And you can find me here on X's for Podcast on Wednesdays and Fridays talking about books new and old. You guys can find me those same locations on this show as well as on the aforementioned partner channel hubs plus network on youtube you can also check out my twitter and instagram at nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n twitter's got a lot more thoughts instagram's a lot thoughtier so you know pick your battles you can check out my original work in the young men in love anthology recently released featuring some amazing creators as well as my indie work over at kidriotcomics.com where you can check out the coolest queer titular speedster doing his shit being an awesome hero you can find out everything you want about the show at x for podcast.com as well as at X's for podcast on Twitter. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Cohen gateways open. Keep spinning that spider web verse web, man. Uh, Black tarantula forever, man. I would like, I don't, I don't bottom, but I'd, I'd let him rim me, you know, like I get it. And we'll see ya. <laughs>